The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and thanks for joining us for another edition of the Court TV Podcast. When Rosemarie Essa was handed a calcium pill by her husband Yazid, she had no reason not to take it. After all, he was the successful ER doctor at the center of her dream life. But within hours of taking that pill, Rosemarie was dead, soon after determined murdered by poisoning, and Yazid would abandon his children and flee to a country with no extradition treaty with the United States. But that's only the beginning of the story that will be told with this week's episode of Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. Here, featuring interviews with Judge Dina Calabrese, reporter Mike O'Mara, Assistant District Attorney Steve Deaver, crime scene investigator David Greet, and medical toxicologist Chris Hostage is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, Medical Mystery. This is the Court TV Podcast. Perfect couple, perfect family, perfect everything. She was in a car accident. The woman is slumped over the wheel, and so they try to get her out of the car. She starts vomiting. Within an hour, she is dead. I think everybody immediately, uh, their spider sense was definitely aroused. Do you ever discuss the fact about paying people not to testify? He knew that he was either going to go to prison or he was going to testify truthfully. Yazid and Rosemary Issa had a fairy tale life together. He was a charming emergency room doctor, and she was a beautiful nurse who stole his heart. Although they were from two very different cultures, their love knew no bounds. But on February 24, 2005, the fairy tale came to a tragic end in the wake of a car accident. What followed was a five year quest for justice that would cross continents and test family loyalties. Yazid Issa was an emergency room doctor in Akron, Ohio, which is just a stone's throw away from Cleveland. And Yaz was considered to be kind of a rock star. Good looking, very charismatic, a lot of friends and fans. Rosie was from a lovely family in Cuyahoga County in Cleveland. They also were from that, that same area, that Gates Mills, Ohio area. By all accounts, a lovely person, uh, adored by her family and friends. Yazid Issa was a, an emergency room doctor who met his wife, Rosemary. He was working as a resident. She was a nurse at the old Mount Sinai Hospital. And so when he married Rosemary DiPuccio, the family thought, well, this is great because, I mean, what a handsome guy. We all seem to, I mean, he's just so nice and warm and fuzzy. And so they embraced him and they moved into a you know, lovely neighborhood. And you have a doctor and a beautiful wife and then they have two little kids not long after. So perfect couple, perfect family, perfect everything. He lived in a really beautiful suburb. He was 
a very successful person. If you saw him, you would have thought that he was and had everything. Success, awesome job, beautiful family. He and his brother, Faraz, had a uh, company called Dish One Up, which was one of the early purveyors of, you know, cable access and stuff, and did really well with that. Um, Dish One Up had its own offices, so they, uh, they were very close and did really well in terms of the, the finance part of the business. The events of February 24th of 2005 is that Rosemary Issa uh, had planned to go see a movie at the local mall and uh, uh, was going to drive there by herself. Rosie uh, had been uh, going to the movies with her sister. They were going to meet at a uh, movie theater for a later afternoon movie. Rosie was talking on the phone with one of her friends. She calls her friend Ava and says, I feel like crap. I just feel horrible. And so she's talking about that with her friend Ava. So she then passes out. There's no more conversation. And so she was in a car accident middle of the day and it's on a, a small road so nobody's going fast and in fact when they look at the damage on the cars it was minor you know a side swipe no big impact no airbags and yet when the EMS people got there the woman is slumped over the wheel and so uh, they try to get her out of the car she starts vomiting it seemed like an unusual circumstance because the crash was such a low-level crash that it didn't make sense to anybody involved as to why a young, healthy woman who, you know, for all intents and purposes, was in excellent health would have this sort of an issue. It's February 24, 2005. 38-year-old mother of two, Rosemarie Issa, is on her way to take in an afternoon movie. While driving to the theater, she suffers a major medical emergency, which renders her unconscious, leading to a seemingly benign traffic accident. As paramedics and police arrive on the scene, they quickly realize Rosemarie's condition is far more dire than they could have imagined. Back in 2005, the police respond to a call that there's been a minor accident, but the driver of the vehicle is not responsive. We have a female who's healthy, who when EMS gets to the scene, she's vomited, she's unresponsive. Things as an emergency physician I would be thinking about is, did she have a aneurysm that ruptured in her brain and she has a large hemorrhage? Did she have a dissection of her aorta that uh, damaged her vessels? And they rush her to Hillcrest Hospital, which is not that far away. And within an hour, she is dead. The husband, the family all rush in, and this uh, it's just stupefying. This makes no sense at all. I mean, did she have an aneurysm? Was there a heart attack? There had to been something because it was not the accident. There had to be a devastating event in a young female to have this occur. I'm sure the emergency physician at the time was frustrated. You don't want to see this in someone who's a young mother who's coming in. You then expect the autopsy to be able to give you the idea of what caused this. 
Strangely enough, um, Dr. Balraj was the coroner at the time, a longtime coroner, and nothing unusual showed up. No medical cause. There was no aneurysm. There was no heart attack. There was no uh, drugs. There was no uh, obvious clue because there was no trauma to the body that would indicate that this was a fatal uh, reaction. In this instance, this case, there was not a determination that this was a homicide. This was a belief that she had died from natural causes. When the autopsy doesn't show you anything, then you start thinking, well, what else could this be? That gets into the law enforcement, and they're gonna have to start thinking outside the box. Do they have access to other aspects? Could there be something nefarious here? And I think in this case, that's what happened. Dominic uh, DiPuccio, who was incredibly smart, also a, a brilliant lawyer, really started to dial in on things that were suspicious. And that's when they started making those phone calls. Eva McGregor called Dominic and began to explain her suspicions and explained that Rosie had not been feeling well on the phone uh, when she was driving. She told Dominic that she thought that something was terribly amiss. So Ava says, I have a weird thing that happened. Rosie was talking to me just before she died. And she was mentioning that Yaz gave her this pill, but she said it just made her feel terrible. So you need to look into that. So Dominic then says to the police, hey, um, you need to talk to Ava because her conversation with me about this pill is kind of strange. I mean, I don't know what to make of it, but it doesn't make sense to me. The investigator said, well, maybe we should look into that. So the police officer calls Dr. Issa, says, hey, do you still have those calcium pills? He goes, I do. He says, well, can I meet you at the house? Let's get those, because what if it's like product tampering because of the, the old Tylenol scare? I mean, there, there was, you know, absolute pattern in history of people being killed by someone putting poison in a pill. So Yaz meets him at the house, hands him over the bottle of calcium pills. The detective bags it, tags it, and sends it off to a scientist, a person who is an expert in looking at the spectron microscopy to know what is in the supplements. I took in the evidence which was submitted to our laboratory, which was a, a plastic bottle filled with pills that were purported to be calcium pills. And my job at this point isn't to prove that there was poison. My job at this point is to, to prove that these capsules are all calcium. I found a bunch of calcium. However, I also found nine of these pills had been tampered with. The calcium pills had a white crushed powder appearance to them. These nine pills had this crystal rock candy kind of appearance to them. And so um, I immediately called the uh, detective that actually dropped off the evidence at our laboratory. I'm like, holy cow, that, okay, one of these things is not like the other. And so um, then I went back and started to do my lab analysis, the actual chemistry, um, nerdy type stuff. We use infrared light and I test it with this material it showed the presence of cyanide. When it was sent off, it took, I wanna say three, four days. But in those three or four days, suddenly, Yaz uh, told the family members and some of his friends, hey, one of my buddies just got hurt. I've gotta go up to Detroit. And uh, so the kids are taken care of. He had two different women come in to be their nannies. And so they didn't know who these women were. The fact that the victim's uh, friend had reported to the police officer that the victim was 
literally forced to take these pills. And then the fact that she died in the manner that she did very suddenly, I just figured that, okay, this case just went from an unknown, unsolved uh, death to a homicide. I think everybody immediately, uh, their spider sense was definitely aroused. Uh, and certainly after the next few days, some of Rosie's friends, you know, they were immediately suspect of Yazid Issa. But once Yazid had turned over the calcium tablets, and it would be highly likely once they were tested that the cyanide would be found, at that point in time, then the focus would come down on Dr. Dr. Issa. And what he chose to do was run. He goes up to Detroit, goes across the bridge to Windsor, from Windsor to Toronto, from Toronto to Cyprus, from Cyprus to Beirut. And why Beirut? Well, of course, he's Lebanese, but Beirut does not have an extradition treaty with the United States. So there he sat, because he had a buddy over in Lebanon that had connections, had papers, had safe houses, and a place for him to just if you're going to be on the lam, the perfect place to be. He is living the playboy life. He is just having a great old time. He would get happy in the nightclub and say, you know, they say I'm a killer. Ha <laughs> ha, I could be a killer. So his friend goes, what are you doing? Perplexed by the cause of Rosemarie's untimely death, authorities hone in on the calcium pills she had taken. After providing investigators with the remaining pills from the bottle for testing, Dr. Yazid Issa tells friends and family he's taking a trip out of town and then quickly flees the country. Upon testing the remaining calcium pills, it is determined they were laced with cyanide. Once, though, the police bagged and tagged the pills, he realized, I'm going to have to get out of here. And that's right, I can go to Lebanon. I can go to Beirut. I can hide from everybody, and my buddies will take care of me. My family will send me money. I will live like a king over there, and nobody can touch me. Once it was determined that this was cyanide poisoning that took place here, and then, you know, uh, Dr. Isak becomes conspicuous by his absence. And he's on the run, and uh, he was a fugitive from justice. There was charges that were brought against him for the murder of his wife. The lead detective, when he finds out that Yaz is gone and they can't find any trace of him, contacts the FBI and said, this guy, our suspect, may have fled the country and that becomes your problem because if he's taken off, then he's trying to escape our jurisdiction, so we need your help. He made a new life for himself, literally in Beirut, in Lebanon, which did not have an extradition policy with the United States at the time. He left behind his children. I think uh, he probably knew that the Tapuccio family would step up and care for, care for them as they have. It was bizarre, though, the fact that he thought it out and was able to to do what he did so efficiently and so in such a calculated manner. It was two years that he was, he was missing. Eventually, through the good contacts that the FBI had with Interpol and with, uh, with uh, other investigative agencies in the Middle East, was able to identify where Dr. Issa was, was able to monitor his whereabouts, and then a plan was put in place as to how to secure him so that he could be brought back. 
He is living the playboy life. He is just having a great old time. So much so that the guy that was his patron in Lebanon said, I need you to be quiet. I need you to shut the hell up about being so bold about everything because he would apparently get, you know, happy in the nightclub and say, you know, they say I'm a killer. Ha <laughs> ha, I could be a killer. Dr. Issa wants to start dating again. So he gets a new address and his new address for emails is fugitive at hotmail.com. So his friend goes, what? What are you doing? Fugitive at hotmail.com. He goes, oh yeah, it's funny. It's great. They'll love it. Really? Well, the FBI, of course, is now still monitoring all of this. There was uh, a, a significant amount of information as to uh, him traveling uh, through Lebanon, and the FBI was made aware that he was going to be traveling to Cyprus. So the FBI finds out he's about to leave for Cyprus. They contact the Cypriot authorities and say, this guy's probably going to show up with a fake passport, which makes him uh, somebody you can arrest for bad papers. So when you arrest him, let us know. And sure as Yaz, with his hair now completely changed, he's got a fro, uh, you know, he's he's the, the playboy of Lebanon. He's, he's, he's all into it. And the police are there say, uh, excuse me, we need you to uh, do your fingerprints here because the fingerprints give him away. He had a false identity. I think his name was uh, Khalife, is what the false identification, false paperwork. Um, they eventually identified him. So they arrest him because, of course, as a doctor at Akron, his fingerprints were on file. So now you faked it, you broke the law, we can arrest you, and over comes the FBI. So doctor, we'd like you to come back to um, the States. We want you to come back to Cleveland. At the time that uh, Dr. Issa was charged with aggravated murder, and although there were not specifications or requests that this be handled as a possible death penalty case, persons could construe that aggravated murder would carry the death sentence. So that was something that we had to navigate through as far as using the United States State Department with the folks in Cyprus to make sure that they uh, understood that we would not be looking for the death sentence because they would have been reluctant to allow him to return for a, for a trial where capital murder was involved. It took a couple of years for this negotiation to go on. Finally, he said, I'm coming back. And so they bring him back in cuffs and now we move to the next phase, which is having a prosecutor and a team that really has nothing more than circumstantial evidence because we've got pills that had poison in them. We've got a guy who fled the country, bad, who had an email address, fugitive at hotmail.com, another bad thing. But how do we prove all of this? After three long years on the run, Yazid Issa is finally extradited back to the United States to stand trial for the murder of his wife, Rosemarie. The prosecution team of Steve Dever and Anna Faralia will have to prove to the jury that Dr. Issa, using his knowledge of medicine, violated his sacred oath in an attempt to commit the perfect murder. 
My drive was to do a really good job for the people of my, my state, to do my job well, and to not let my personal feelings or anything else interfere. I also knew that in going forward, if I had made errors, that my own career would be defined by this case. Uh, that so much of what I was doing was being scrutinized. All right, good morning, everybody. Again, we're back on the record in State of Ohio versus Yazid Issa, case number 476832. We are getting ready to begin opening statements at this time. On April 20th, 2005, the Cuyahoga County coroner ruled that Rosemary Issa died as a result of acute cyanide intoxication. When this tragedy was announced, this 38-year-old mother of two had been in her grave for nearly two months. Meanwhile, her husband had fled this country over a month earlier and had started a new life in Beirut, Lebanon, living as Maurice Khalifi. Steve Dever was the lead assistant county prosecutor, and Steve is not flashy. He is not somebody who's the old sort of theatrical style of bombast and stuff. Very simple, very businesslike, but very precise. Of the, all of the people who commit the crime of murder, the poisoner is probably the most craftier of all of those types of killers. And the reason being, ladies and gentlemen, is that it's so difficult, first of all, to detect poison. And secondly, it's very, very difficult to identify who could be the perpetrator. Both of the defense uh, attorneys did a good job because you know, our client, of course, is uh, Lebanese. You know, people, he's not going to get a fair shake because of, you know, the animus between Americans and the Lebanese right now. There is no question that the death of Rosemarie Issa was senseless, needless, and certainly tragic. And I'm certain that when you hear from every witness that knew Rose Marie. You were gonna hear that she was a terrific person whose life clearly ended way too soon. I have a lot of respect for the two fine defense attorneys, Mr. Bradley and Mr. Marine. They are uh, worthy adversaries and they worked this case up, they worked it hard. And all of that is true, but equally true. And what you will come to see as this trial unfolds over the next several weeks, is that Dr. Yazid Issa did not commit this crime. He did not intentionally poison the mother of his two young children. The woman with whom he was actively trying to conceive a third child and add to their family something they both wanted And you're going to see that he did not commit this crime because there was no reason for him to have committed this crime. The most compelling testimony of that entire trial was the testimony of Yazid Issa's brother. Uh, uh, definitely those two guys were the best of friends. They had built a great business together, and they were active in each other's lives. Now, up until that time when your brother contacted you, that was following the, the interview with the police, isn't that correct? Yes. And you actually came over to their to Yazid Issa's house in Gates Mill, didn't you? Yes. Right? And he was pretty worked up about that interview, wasn't he? 
He was a little nervous. Yeah, he was scared. All right. And what was he afraid of? Uh, basically that people would find out about his affairs. And because of that, that the fact that, uh, that uh, your brother had had a relationship while married, that caused him so much concern that you advised him that, hey, you better go talk to your lawyer. Is that correct? That caused me concern. Okay. At that point in time, we don't have a murder and we don't have a poisoning, right? Don't you think you kind of jumped the gun about that concern? People jump the gun all the time. Okay. Well, you did that day, right? I just thought it was smart for him to speak to an attorney. Okay. That was... Right. Well, when did he tell you that he gave the pill to his wife that killed her? You know, sometime after she passed away. So sometime within those two or three days. Those days kind of blur together for me because it was a pretty bad period. I mean, okay. we just lost somebody we love. All right. And when you had that conversation with him about that, did you ask him, well, who possibly could have put cyanide into those pills? Yes. All right. And did you ask him if he killed his wife? Yes. And what did he say? He said no. I think for us knew the stakes. I mean, he knew that he would likely go to prison if he did not cooperate. And I think that it was very, very challenging for him because he knew that he was either gonna go to prison or he was gonna testify truthfully. Let me ask you this. In your conversations with your brother, did you ever discuss the fact about paying people not to testify? No. Did you ever have a conversation with your brother about paying $35,000 to shut somebody up? No. No? Can you cue that up, please? uncover several conversations that Dr. Issa was having with his brother concerning trying to influence witnesses and what we perceive to be an attempt to bribe or intimidate a witness not to testify or not to testify truthfully. You talked to your brother on the telephone when he arrived back here at the Justice Center, is that correct? Yes. And you're aware that those conversations that take place from the Justice Center are recorded, is that yes. correct? Right. Yes. Okay. And every the testimony that you've given here today to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury and yesterday has been the truth and the complete truth. Is that correct? Yes. All right. And there was, in fact, a conversation you had with your brother about paying, quote, that bitch $35,000 to shut her up. Is that right? I believe so, yes. Okay. The prosecutor said, stop. Well, hold on. Are you telling me the truth now? Or do you want to think about this? Do you want to take a break and come back? Because, you know, perjury is a big deal here. At this time, uh, I want to advise you of your right against self-incrimination. You know that you have the right to remain silent. You do not have to answer questions uh, that would incriminate yourself. If you would like to consult with your attorney at this point, you are able to do that, and I will give you the opportunity to step off the witness stand and to take uh, that time. He consulted with an attorney. He had the choice of either provide truthful testimony concerning what his brother said concerning the death of, of Rosemary Issa, or he could face the consequences of obstruction of justice, intimidating witnesses, as well as committing perjury. She said to me that she was gonna call Yaz and ask him if the calcium pill he gave her could be making her sick. He bragged about it every damn day.
The prosecution has struck a potentially devastating blow to Yazid Issa's defense in the murder trial of his wife, Rosemarie. While testifying on the witness stand, Faraz Issa is caught lying to the jury regarding a pretrial jailhouse conversation he had with his brother, the defendant, Yazid. Although Faraz is excused to speak to his attorney, the defense knows full well that once recalled to the stand, he may have knowledge that can sink their case. The fact that you have a successful, popular, charismatic emergency room doctor who had the perfect lifestyle, a loving wife, two adorable kids, and then it all gets crushed by his evilness. That to me was, uh, and, and, and the parents and the families demand for justice to me was a perfect story and that needed to be shared and I think that's why people related to it. He had affairs. He had more than two affairs but there were two that uh, admitted that there in fact were had relationships with Dr. Issa. This relationship you had with the defendant uh, was this a sexual relationship? At one point um, after we were married in 2001 we began another sexual relationship. So after you were married and after the defendant was married, yes. is that correct? And uh, do you know the defendant, Yazid Issa? Yes, I do. And how do you know Yazid Issa? Um, I had a romantic relationship with him. Oh, in order for this relationship to have a, a future, it was your position that he could no longer be married, is that correct? Yes. All right. And did you express that to him? Probably a couple of times. The suggestion by the prosecution was that he, of course, was having affairs all through his marriage and that the two women who became his nannies were uh, his lovers at the time. And then after Rosemary is killed, he brings them right into the house. How would somebody do that? That's something that is diabolical in my book. I think that uh, Eva McGregor's testimony was incredibly compelling. And during that day, did you receive a phone call? I did. From Rosie? Mm -hmm. Yes. And where were you when you received your phone call? I was in my office. The last conversation that uh, Mrs. Issa had with her good friend and neighbor concerning the calcium pills was one of the revelations as far as focusing down on the pills as a possible source or having something to do with uh, Mrs. Issa's death. She said she wasn't feeling well. And I said, why, I, I, what's the matter? She says, well, I'm feeling a little nauseous. She said that she had taken a, a calcium pill right before she left the, her house. And I said, calcium? I said, when did you start taking calcium? And she said, well, she was at um, Yaz's family's and they had a discussion that because of her age, she should start to take calcium. And she said she didn't really want to take it. And she said as she was in a, you know, rushing out the door, he said, here, take it, take your calcium. And she said, I just, you know, that I took it. And she says, and now I don't know if that's what's making me sick. So your understanding was that Yas had given her a calcium pill. Yes. Mrs. McGregor, when did you talk to Rosemary again? I never did. Was that your last phone call with Rosemary? Yes. 
What was your reaction? What was your feeling at the time when you talked to Eva McGregor? I, I could not believe what she had just told me. And what did you do? We uh, called the coroner in the morning and told him that to make sure he does a full autopsy of full toxicology. And why was it important for you to have the coroner do a full autopsy and full toxicology at that time? Because of what Eva told us and she was insistent. She was absolutely insistent that we promise her that we will do that. All right. One of the instances in the trial that stood out to me was when they brought in uh, Mr. Khalif from, who had been his protector in Lebanon. Um, he took the witness stand. I tried to help him for all the way through. What do you mean by trying to help? Um, to establish a life over there. How did you try to help him establish his life over there? Getting him IDs and getting him things to do over there. Okay. And what kind of IDs did you get from the defense? Five, six different IDs. So how does one legally in Lebanon get false identifications for a fugitive from justice? There is ways. Yes, if you know the right people. If you know the right people. Mr. Uh, Khalifi was also larger than life, uh, very boisterous, very gregarious in the courtroom. He was a very interesting character. Okay, well, what was the context that he would talk about his white staff? The context? So yeah. he told me to sign a pills in a jar. There was like six, seven pills and vitamin jar. And uh, he gave her two pills, and he grounded the Sinai, refilled the pills. That information was critical, specifically the admissions that uh, Dr. Issa had poisoned his wife, had killed his wife. Um, that was significant evidence. He bragged about it every damn day in Lebanon. Judge, it was. Did you instruct him to answer my question? Just to ask him. Yes. Right. And the answer, what you that yes to is you've told that same story. Yes. And it's been accounted three different ways. Yes. Faraz comes back, takes a witness stand, raises his right hand, the prosecutor says, so I was asking you some questions before. Let me ask you, what did your brother, Dr. Issa, tell you about this murder? I asked him if he was responsible for her death, and he said yes. What did he tell you that he did? He said that he put the cyanide in the capsules. When your own brother now says you admitted to him, this is the person who is protecting you, sending you money, your business partner, your flesh and blood, said you admitted to him, we're done. We are so done with this thing. When you found out that information, what did you say to your brother? He told me he's a f I mean, why did you say that? Because he took Rosie's life. I loved her. He just ruined his whole family. It was a heartbreaking moment um, because Faraz clearly loved Rosie. And he was, I think, in the worst position that one could possibly be in. of this trial, the prosecution has clearly demonstrated for the jury the type of person Yazid Issa is. 
What they say is that the truth can't be discounted, that a young mother of two was murdered, leaving heartbroken friends and family members with more questions than answers. Defense attorneys Stephen Brandley and Mark Marion have the difficult task of convincing the jury that their client had no motive to commit this crime. This was a case that I had at the very beginning of my career as a judge, and it was like going from the minor leagues up to pitch at the World Series on the last game. It was the most intense trial that I've ever had. The power of the emotion that you can feel when you consider the sympathy towards the DiPuccio family, those children, and Rosemarie herself. And the power of the emotion that you feel in terms of the disgust and disdain that you might maintain towards this man as a human being. And you have to remind yourself that that is not evidence. You have to consider the evidence that was presented. And if you feel that any of the evidence that was presented raises a reasonable doubt in your individual minds to recognize that doubt and return a verdict of not guilty. I think that all of the pieces uh, of this case came together uh, and the prosecutors were very thorough in their presentation. But of the most important testimony you have heard or that you will ever hear, came right from this witness stand. When Eva McGregor sat down <coughs> and she looked at you and she told you something very important, very rarely does a victim speak to you. She told you in her own words, he handed me a calcium pill as I walked out the door. And you've come to find out, ladies and gentlemen, that that calcium pill is laced with cyanide, the same cyanide that killed her. No one's asking you to make a quantum leap in this case, ladies and gentlemen, and no one's asking you to think outside the box. The only thing we ask is that you use your common sense and your good judgment the jury was incredibly thoughtful and deliberate during the course of their deliberations. They took their time. Will rise from the jury, please? You can be seated. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I understand that you have reached a verdict in this case. Is that correct? Yes. yes. Very good. Mr. Foreperson, if you would, hand me the verdict form. <clears throat> We, the jury in this case, being duly impaneled and sworn, do find the defendant, Yazid Issa, guilty of dated murder in violation of 2903.01a of the revised code. Dr. Issa was found guilty of aggravated murder, that this was a pre-calculated decision to cause her death. Her mom and dad when you watch their faces during the testimony and you watch their faces when uh, the guilty verdict came in, you know, they're hugging each other and they were so lovable. So you understood their pain. And I, I just, 
I was moved by that. February 24th, 2005, I told Gigi uh, our luck ran out. We lost our Rosie for no reason. There is no closure. I mean, we were changed forever, but we'll, we'll survive, we'll handle it. The only thing I'm hoping that from now on, maybe there'll be less nights that my wife cries herself to sleep. The DiPuccio family, they needed to speak, and th there was nothing that I could have said that would have been any better than what each one of them had said. What do you say to a person that murders the mother of his children? A murdering coward, no heart, no compassion, no remorse, evil. Seven weeks looking at the devil in his eyes and a blank expression. May your life in prison be as miserable as you are. The brothers uh, being, you know, attorneys and being men who try and be more stoic about it, but just gushed the trauma and the, and the disbelief and the pain and the betrayal. Jamal Khalifi was worthy enough to hear Yaz say he killed Rosie. And his brother was given that special treatment to hear those words. So what about us today? What do we deserve? He set the bar, but I'm not holding my breath. Five years ago, this nightmare started with the act of a coward, and I predicted a land with one. I challenge him to find the courage today to admit what he did, to provide the apology to my mother, my father, my sister, my wife, my brother, Rachel, deserve. Are you man enough? Are you? Forget that appeal. Stop wasting your brother's money. It's your last chance to save your soul. Right here, right now. Oh, yes. Are you a man or not? Thank you. Thank you, Marco. He was there in the room with him never, ever gave him any indication that he was overwhelmed with any kind of grief and or remorse at trial. I am so glad that you will be leaving my courtroom now and that I hopefully will never have to look upon you again. At this time, I sentence you to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years. We've all taken an oath as physicians to do no harm. To take your knowledge base and to use that to do harm against someone who's a family member or others in society, that's just a whole nother level. We're offended for anyone to do this, uh, but certainly someone with that knowledge base to use it after taking an oath is even more so. I think that Yazid Esau wanted to have everything, the status, the warmth, the love, the companionship of these people, but he also wanted to have affairs. He wanted to have mistresses. If Rosie divorced him, he would lose the DiPuccio family and he would lose likely a great deal of uh, custody of his children and his bad character would be revealed. I think that 
in his own narcissism, he could not have that. On March 5th, 2010, Yazid Issa was convicted of murdering his wife, Rose Marie. He is currently serving out a life sentence in the Ohio State Penitentiary. He will be eligible for parole in January of 2029. I'm Cameron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another episode of our Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. You can see the entire murder trial of Yazid Issa on our website. Just check the show notes for a link. And be sure to tune in to Court TV every evening at 7 p.m. when we'll show other episodes of Someone They Knew and Sundays at 9 for premiere episodes. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.